When I was in seminary, I took a preaching class, and they said, look, uh, when you preach, don't use a lot of sports analogies because um, it's easy to do, but you lose half of everybody just don't care anything about sports. So that, that's hard to do, though, because I'm a sports fan, and I'm a Patriots fan, so it makes it really hard to do. But um, you don't have to be a sports fan. To, so I try to use these sparingly, but you don't have to be a sports fan to appreciate this. Uh, the, the New England Patriots, that's our local professional football team. They won a game called the Super Bowl, which is a really kind of a big deal sporting event in the world. Okay, is everybody with me so far? Okay. Uh, the day, it, to, to be great, and to be, particularly in sports, to be great, it's hard to maintain that over a long period of time. Uh, because we live in a world where greatness is seen as something, once you achieve it, you have it, you party, you, you, you know, you've made it, and you just kind of rest in your greatness. And you forget the, the sort of the work and the effort it took, the outpouring it took to get there, that it's not just something that goes away. So it's the day after the Super Bowl this year, uh, Bill Belichick was asked to reflect, you know, the, with all the championships and, the, you know, one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. And they said, you know, has it sunk in at all? Have you, you know, how do you enjoy this? And he said this, quote, as great as today is, in all honesty, we're five weeks behind 30 teams in the league preparing for the 2017 season. That was the day after they won the championship. He said, hey, while we were busy winning the championship, all these other teams were looking forward to next season, and we haven't been able to do that. So now we're behind, and we've got to catch up. Just relentless. Um, and of course, they asked him, when do you actually rest, or do you ever actually rest? He said, yeah, there's a week, there's a week in June where we're not allowed to talk to the players, and we're not allowed to meet. And then, yeah, I'll rest then. But until then? Not so much. Uh, there's a sense that if you're going to be truly great at something, you just got to pour yourself fully into it. Um, to, to be truly great isn't just about resting in your position, your authority, but giving yourself uh, to whatever is great. But, um, but what is greatness, and how do we pursue it? Because we live in a world that pursues greatness by uh, trying to get ahead of other people, um, trying to be better than other people, in, in, and then somehow achieve it, get there, associate yourself with the right people, the right situations, and then resting in it, kind of using the greatness that you've gained. Jesus' disciples are looking for that. They're walking with him, and they see momentum. They see this kind of a, this Jesus thing is gaining some popularity, a lot of followers, also some opposition that's gaining. Not necessarily a bad thing if you're on the winning side of that. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the power. They, they've seen it. Greatness is coming, and they want to rest in it. They want to be part of it and enter into it with Jesus by association with Jesus. And they ask Jesus, hey, where are we going to sit in, in victory? When the greatness comes in, how can we be great with you? Can we sit by your side? But... Jesus has tried to tell them and he's tried to demonstrate to them over and over again that greatness in his kingdom, he's a king and he's ushering in this new kingdom, greatness in that kingdom is very different than how the rest of the world is going to view greatness. Yes, Jesus is bringing in this kingdom. Yes, he is a king. Yes, he does rule. But he rules ultimately by giving his life to those he loved. Laying down his, sacrificing his own life on the cross. And he told them that that's how he was going to 
to do this thing. This is the third time now, so this is the context of this passage that Jay just read for us. The context of this is that Jesus is, is going to die, and he's telling his disciples that he's going to die. He said it explicitly. Just before this, Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said this. He said, we're, heading, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise. Jesus made it very clear that the cross wasn't just something that happened to him in the course of his life and ministry, that the cross was the central purpose and reason for his ministry. And so Jesus' whole way was to die and to be a sacrifice. And here, his disciples just don't get it. They said, look, Jesus, you seem pretty great. We want to be great, too. So I want to do two things as we look at what happened here. Take a look at how the world views greatness and pursues greatness and uses greatness and how Jesus pursues and uses and understands greatness and, and the difference between these two things. Let's pray as we do. So, Father... You are so good to call us to be your people, to be part of your kingdom. And we know, Lord, that you are here. And by the power of your spirit, you are in this place. And we pray that you would be our teacher in this time, that you would give us insight into your word and help us to understand what it means to be part of your kingdom, Lord. Give us hearts that are ready to hear and respond to your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing, greatness in the world. Here we have James and John, Jesus' disciples. They go to him and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now that's a pretty bold statement. And I think to myself, there must be a translation issue here. Or maybe that wasn't so bold of a statement in their day. But the more I look at it, that's just a pretty bold statement. Jesus, will you just do whatever we're going to ask you to do? So Jesus replies in verse 36, he says, uh, oh, yeah, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. This is how the world pursues power and greatness. By getting ahead, by seeking power. Uh, the, the thought is that in the world, that greatness comes by my association. Am I associated with powerful people? Am I, uh, do, do I have authority over others? Do I have, is it my position, my job, my, what, my stage in life, and how do I use that? How do I get that? That's how the world pursues greatness. And look at the response of the other disciples. Look at verse 41. It says, When the ten, the other ten disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Why did they become indignant? Was it because they were so offended? Did you not understand? Our, our Lord just said that he had to die, and you're asking about how to be great in his kingdom and where you're going to sit. I don't, I'm not sure that's why they were upset. Because the other two times that he told them he was going to die, they were almost immediately bickering about who's going to be the greatest. Or the first time, the disciple Peter said, Lord, may this not be. 
you don't talk about dying. That's not how this works. That's not how greatness works. They don't, I don't think any of them understand this. I think they're indignant because James and John cut the line. James and John went ask first. And notice Peter's not with them. So Peter, Peter, James, and John, we understand as we read the account of Jesus' life and ministry, they had special access to Jesus. Jesus showed them things that he didn't show the others. But now, Peter's, and he, Peter was very vocal and outspoken. Peter was perhaps the leader of this group. Peter's not here. Now we have James and John kind of going away from their buddy, seeing how to get ahead. They're all jockeying for position. The other disciples, it's a matter of, you know, I'm indignant because I want it too. I don't want you to have it just because you went first. But this is how the world views greatness, just whatever you can do to get ahead. And if somebody gets a leg up on you, you you're you're envious of that and you're uh, upset about that and angry about that. So pursuing greatness, but also when you get greatness, Jesus teaches them. And he... And again, he's, he calls them all together. So this isn't just James and John, but look at verse 42. Jesus called them together, and them, the disciples. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. As soon as, in a worldly system, as soon as you get this greatness, as soon as you get the power, you start to use it to boss other people around, to control other people, to rest in your greatness and just... Watch things work underneath you. When the disciples ask to have greatness and power in Jesus' kingdom, he knows that they don't understand true greatness. And he says it in verse 38. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And he asked them, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He's talking about kind of symbolic language, but he's talking about this cup of suffering and this baptism, this overwhelming trial of going to Jerusalem and and being arrested and facing the cross and giving his life. Just this great suffering. And Jesus is saying, can you actually do that? Do you even know what you're asking? Jesus' moment of glory is when he goes on the cross and he gives his life for you and for me and for all the sins of the world. Jesus goes to the cross and at that moment of glory, there was a place to his right and to his left. You know what it was? A cross and another cross. Now, I don't know if Jesus specifically has that in mind here, but when they say, who's going to be at your right and your left in your glory, he says, you don't know what you're talking about. This is where it gets real for us, folks, when we follow Jesus. If Jesus promised anything to those who would go after them, he said, if you're going to come after me, you need to actually take up a cross and follow me. That following me isn't some upward path of greatness, but it's a downward path of giving away your life of dying to yourself and living for others, pouring out your life for others. If Jesus promised anything to his disciples, it wasn't prosperity and easy life and uh, bossing people around. It was about suffering. He said, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. That we should expect suffering. But in the midst of it, there's great blessing. God, The blessing of God's kingdom flows through that, yes. And we, we talk about the new life and, and God's presence and the joy we can have in the midst of all those things. But... It, it is, a way, it is a way of life where we pour out for others, not to gain and to get ahead. 
And Jesus knows they don't understand. They said, can you, do, do you think you can take this cup of suffering like this? Do you think you could take this kind of baptism? And they say in verse 39, we can. Sure. You can see the pride in this. And we, we must remember, and the disciples don't, do not see here, that faith is not about gaining self-confidence and, and uh, just self-confidence in what we can achieve. It's not about the faith is not about increasing how we feel about ourselves, but increasing our confidence in our Savior, increasing our confidence in our Lord who will guide us, who will lead us. But they feel pretty strong. Yeah, we can. And Jesus says to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptize, with a baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. He, Jesus said, look, there is a kingdom. And this isn't even, the, sitting at my right and left, you, this isn't even, this is in the hands of the Father. This is not for you. But you are going to drink the cup. You are going to suffer. And they did. James and John, particularly. James was martyred, killed for his faith in Jesus. John was not martyred. He was probably the only disciple, as far as we understand, who was not martyred for his faith. But he was arrested and tortured and exiled to an island. They suffered greatly for Jesus. They... they, actually entered into this kingdom that Jesus established. But it's not a kingdom of upward gaining. It's about giving away. So Jesus tells them in verse 43, not so with you. Not so with you. There's other leaders who, when they get an authority, they lord it over others. They tell people what to do. Not so with you. And we have to remind ourselves, it's not so with us. Not the world's way of of becoming great. Whenever you see someone misuse power, just hear God's voice saying, not so with you. When you see people stepping over each other, you're trying to do the right thing and you get passed over at work and, and people who are doing all kinds of evil things seem to be getting ahead, you just say, not so with you. When someone is boasting about their property or their achievement or how wonderful their children are compared to yours, not so with you. Our greatness does not come from those things. Instead, Jesus says, verse 43, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. We actually become great by being servants of the world, by pouring out our lives to serve and to love. Greatness looks like serving others. That's a pretty different looking kingdom. But we see it, and we see glimpses of it in our world. That true greatness, true greatness is found when people dedicate themselves to others. True greatness is uh, about gaining influence because you've loved and served, not taking influence because you're grasping for power and titles and status. You can see it in a, in a, in a small business where the, the, the regular 
associate leaves at 5.30 and there's the chief executive with lights on late into the night working hard and it was, the, it was his willingness to give the extra time and service that made him great, that, that people recognized to make him the head of this firm. You, you see it in your own habits when you, uh, when you give your business to, you'll, you'll give your business to someone who is willing to serve you, for the company that's willing to provide you the most excellent customer service and satisfaction because they are actually serving you and they become great. That greatness is, re, true greatness is not found by uh, just trying to make what you're worth and, and have people value you, but for you to give of yourself. There's this great little poem I found this week by Rudyard Kipling. It, it goes like this. It's called Mary's Son. It goes like this. If you stop to find out what your wages will be and how they will clothe you and feed you, Willie, my son, don't you go out to sea, for the sea will never need you. If you ask for the reason of every command and argue with people about you, Willie, my son, don't you go on the land, for the land will do better without you. And if you stop to consider the work you have done and to boast what your labor is worth, dear, angels may come for you, Willie, my son, but you'll never be wanted on earth, dear. Isn't that true, though? Greatness comes from giving of yourself, not from getting what you think you deserve, considering what you can get. And we know this is true because greatness comes from sacrificing. And sacrifice is at the heart of love. And if you think of anybody in your life who has loved you or who has become great in your esteem and in your eyes, that's probably a person who has sacrificed for you, whether it's a parent or a teacher or a spouse or a mentor or someone in your life who gave of themselves for you, and in your esteem, they are great because sacrifice is at the heart of love. And Jesus gives an illustration. He said, I want to illustrate this for you. And the illustration that he gives is his own very life. Look at verse 45. He said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom. And, and we did need to be ransomed. Every human being who's ever lived is a slave, is imprisoned to the sin of their own life. Sin is everything we do or think or believe that is not of God, that is not of faith, and that we go our own way. And this is a, described as an imprisonment. And we need to be ransomed and rescued out of that. It was only at the cost of Jesus' life. He takes the ultimate punishment for our sin. The ultimate sentence is death. Jesus takes that on the cross. And he pays the price, his own righteous life. He pays the debt we could never pay. And he pays the ransom so that we could be truly free. So now what do we do with that? We serve. You want to be great in Jesus' kingdom? Give your life away. Give your time away. Give your money away. Be great by giving of yourself. We don't serve because we are obligated to serve. We serve because we have been served so excellently 
by the one who gave himself to us. We want to follow his example, but he's more than my example. He's certainly an example of pouring out his life, but he's my, he's my example, but he's my savior. He accomplished something on that cross. And that has set a pattern for this kingdom. It's a Christ-shaped pattern of giving life, but we follow in that way. And God's blessings do flow to us as we serve. Now, I don't serve to get God's blessing. I serve because I've been blessed, but as I serve, I experience more of his blessing because I'm living into how he created me and the way of life that he's established. So I don't feel bad that it feels good to serve others. I don't feel bad that it does feel good to serve others. So we're going to serve together. We're going to have a service day. I want you to take a look at this when you get a chance. Uh, visit out in the rotunda after. We work with existing groups. We don't want to recreate the wheel and all, the, all these things. There is good work going out there. We don't need the credit. We just want to support and serve in our community. One of the greatest compliments I've ever received as a pastor, I was at a, a breakfast, and there's a group called Communities Together. It used to be called the Greater Lawrence Council of Churches. And they have this uh, church and agency breakfast where they try to partner church and religious leaders with community service leaders in the community. And they go around the big table, and everybody stands up, gives a little elevator speech. I'm so-and-so, and this is what we do. And everybody goes around. After the breakfast, a guy came up to me from a ministry that we have served for many years. And he said, hey, you're the pastor of Free Church. I said, yeah. He said, your people know how to serve. And they serve excellently. Wow, what a great compliment. Thank you. And I look, because I assume he's going to go around to all the pastors and say, thank you for serving, and thank you for the good work your people are doing. And he didn't. He came up to me, and he was talking about you. And if we're going to be famous for, ever, for anything, let's be famous for loving people. Let's be famous for serving so excellently and giving of ourselves and our time that God would be glorified in that. I believe that the historic... Our historic legacy of this church, of people, of the group of abolitionists who stood to, to serve and, and to fight for people's rights and for what is uh, right and if freedom is, is in, inspires our ministry to, to step up for those in need, to serve, or to give people's, people dignity and, and healing in their lives. And it all resembles Jesus who ultimately gave his life for us. So we serve, and we're going to serve on service day. Now, service day is just a splash. And we're not just looking for a splash. We're not just looking to make a, kind of make a splash in the community. We want to flow. This is actually, it's more of a, this is the picture. Isaiah 58 says, If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. And your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always, and he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. We don't want to make a splash. We want to be a spring of life to the world around us. And as we serve, the Lord will guide us and strengthen us and water our lives that we might continue to do that. But here's why we do a service day or a splash. We want to grow. We want to learn. We want to connect you to the good things that are happening all around. And some of you are already very actively involved in these things. And we want more people involved. We want to learn. We want to experience it in new ways and grow in it. 
and exercise our serving life together. And we pray against pride and we pray against any sense that this is making us great or so good that we would just be thankful to God for the life he's given us and the opportunity to serve. There was a uh, famous nobleman, a German of the 18th century, early 18th century, Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And Zinzendorf was a you know, very prominent family, uh, but a person of faith. He started what became the uh, Moravian Church. And he was serving people who uh, were in great need around him and, and uh, refugees. He, was, he traveled around the world and even in this country, and ministered to, to Native Americans and to, uh, he's trying to get church, independent churches to work together, to put aside their differences, to, to serve, and for Christians to gather and live in community together and live what it, it really meant. Everybody knew who he was, and people either loved him or hated him. And he wasn't a theologian. He, he, he didn't uh, get formal training. His theology might have been a little squishy, made some enemies in, in, in that sense, but he loved the Lord. And he gave, he was, he, by the time he was done, he had basically given everything away and poured out his life. But it all started when he was 19 years old. I want to show you a painting. He, he, he was, this is part of his training, and he was at a museum, and he was, he, he was, ref, he was looking at this painting. This is uh, by Domenico Fetti. It's, it's a work called um, Ecce Homo, which means Behold the Man, and it's Jesus with his crown of thorns. And Zinzendorf is looking at this painting and the, there's words inscribed underneath the painting in Latin. It, it, the English translation is, this have I done for you. Now what will you do for me? And it so moved him. He just had a great experience of God's Holy Spirit in that moment reflecting on this that he vowed that day to, to, get, to dedicate his whole life to service to Jesus. Jesus made the way. Now we just go and serve in his name. There was another person, a woman who, was reflect, who saw this painting, seeing Jesus with the crown of thorns. Uh, her name was Frances Havergal. And she just, she wrote a poem. She wrote a hymn called, I Gave My Life for Thee, based on this painting and this inscription. And um, in our... During the offertory this morning, we're gonna we're gonna hear those hear that it's kind of an old hymn, just reflecting on Jesus giving His life for us, and now that we can now give our lives for the world around us, Jesus has made the way. Now we go and serve. Amen.